Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I'm Indre Viscontis. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Emotions are running high these days, whether it's a result of the pandemic or the election or Thanksgiving coming up. And we often hear people talk about this idea that we have two brains, our our lizard or reptilian brain that is where our instincts and impulses begin and that can take over in, in moments of high emotion. And our rational, newly evolved brain that allows us to override some of those impulses and make better decisions. Sometimes you even hear of a third brain, the limbic system, which is about motivated behaviors and essentially our emotional regulation. But the neuroscience doesn't support this idea of a triune brain, nor does it support this idea that emotions are just automatic and that they are hardwired into your body or your brain. Instead, as Lisa Feldman Barrett describes, emotions are constructed in the moment by different systems that interact across the whole brain and that are influenced by a lifetime of learning. So as we navigate the next few weeks, which might be difficult for all of us, I thought it might be good to talk to Lisa Feldman Barrett about these ideas and get a deeper understanding of how our brains actually work. In addition to a book that came out in 2017 called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, Lisa Feldman Barrett has recently released a wonderful little book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. She's among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world, not just neuroscientists. For her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience, she's a distinguished professor at Northeastern University and was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in neuroscience in 2019. Lisa Feldman Barrett, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's such a pleasure. And I have to say that your uh, the description of your book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, as neuroscience's first beach read, I thought was hyperbole when I first saw it. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, that's actually true. Yeah. It is. <laughs> but it is not light in terms of the depth of, of the ideas and the accuracy of the neuroscience. And you start out right away talking about some of the most 
kind of mind-boggling complex things that even I, as a person who communicates neuroscience to the public, really struggle with a lot, which is, and so I want to just start by getting you to, to explain to us uh, once and for all, although we'll probably still, it's such a compelling idea, we'll probably still encounter it, why the idea that we have three brains, the, the, <laughs> the reptilian, the lizard, I don't know, and the whatever the, 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 the rational one is, is so fundamentally wrong. Well, should I explain why it's fundamentally wrong or should I explain why it is the case that we've known really for the past 50 years that it's wrong, at least? Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of have to consider both. Like, why did, was it so compelling or why does it remain so compelling? I mean, I, I think this to, to me is kind of one of the mysteries is that we we have known that it's wrong and yet it still continues to permeate mm-hmm. even, you know, the science when, when, itself. E- yeah. yeah, even neuroscientists you know, yeah. use it all the time. So, yeah, yeah. so maybe we first, yeah, let's, let's start with what it is. <laughs> what's the idea? And then maybe we can start pulling apart fact from fiction. Sure. So the idea, which is the technical term is called the triune brain, triune as in three parts. The idea is that your brain, that the brain evolved in three parts in like sedimentary uh, layers of rock, like sedimentary rock. So that um, first there were instincts that evolved, circuitry for instincts that evolved in the lizard brain or the reptilian brain. So instincts would be the need to eat, so feeding, the need to flee from a predator, protect from a predator, so fleeing, the need to um, fight a member of your species or, or a predator, so that would be fighting. So feeding, fleeing, fighting, and uh, reproduction, which scientists call the four the four Fs, <laughs> uh, and so the, the the circuitry for these evolved in in reptiles, and then sometime uh, in ancient mammals, um, new parts evolved on top of those old parts, which um, are called uh, the limbic collectively called the limbic system. Limbic meaning border, so these are regions that border the so-called lizard brain or reptilian brain. And scientists assigned these parts the function of emotion. And then on top of those evolve uh, the neocortex for your cerebral cortex, or neo meaning new. And um, the idea was that this is the home of, the, of rationality, of human rationality. And this idea that you know your brain evolved like layer, like layers um, of rock or my 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 preferred analogy is like you know that your neocortex supposedly evolved on top of um the other two parts like like icing on an already baked cake you know you've got this inner beast um that has to be tamed and um and so uh you know this inner beast is in constant conflict with your uh more rational neocortex for the control of your behavior and when when your neocortex wins um, then you are either, depending on who you read, a moral person um, or um, or a healthy person. Uh, and when your um, your inner beast, you know, that is your reptilian or your lizard brain or your limbic system, wrest control away uh, from your neocortex in this grand battle that's co- constantly occurring, then you're either, you know. Um, a bad person because you allowed it to happen and you didn't have enough self-control 
or you're an unhealthy person, you have a mental disease, a mental disorder. And this is an idea that is in economics, it's in the law, um, and it's also in neuroscience. So you read a lot about, you know, for example, um, a brain part called the amygdala, which is a clump, a bunch of clumps of cells um, in um, the so-called limbic system, and about how your prefrontal cortex um, regulates and sort of dampens down the inner beast inside your amygdala. And this, you know, idea, this story about brain evolution, if you just look at animal brains with the naked eye, sure enough, it looks as if um, a lizard doesn't really have uh, a cerebral cortex and it doesn't have very much of one. And uh, when you look at a rat, it, it looks like it has a limbic system, but not a very big cerebral cortex, the new part. And then, you know, when you look at a human, it looks like we have a huge neocortex. So when you look at the brains, just, you're just with the naked eye, it seems to conform to this, this idea, um, an idea that goes back all the way, really, to Plato. So in ancient Greece, Plato obviously wasn't writing about the brain. He was writing a morality story about human morality and control uh, and responsibility for behavior. And so Plato's idea um, was that, you know, uh, you have uh, a psyche which isn't exactly the same as a mind, but for present purposes, most scientists sort of make that analogy. And Plato's idea was that your mind, the human mind consists of three parts, two stallions and a chariot driver. That's the analogy. And so one stallion, uh, it, the black stallion is our instincts and the white stallion are emotions, passions. Um, and the chariot driver who's trying to control the two beasts. And in Plato's writing, this is a, this is a, this is a, it's not really an origin story per se. It's a story about human morality and control and responsibility for behavior. But scientists in the 20th century, particularly spurred on by the first and second world wars, um, took Plato's idea and basically tattooed it onto the brain to make a human origin story about where the human brain comes from. And this was picked up by many, many, many scientists and many, many people, um, you know, what in my house we call civilians, you know, non-scientists. And um, it was made really popular actually in the 1970s in a very famous book uh, that, you know, you might know called The Dragons of Eden, um, which won a, a Pulitzer Prize. The irony, um, really, is that um, that right around the time when the Dragons of Eden was being written and published, you know, right around the time um, when Carl Sagan was most popularly um, portraying the brain in this way, that was right around the time when scientists were able to peer deep into the molecular structure of neurons, brain cells, some of the brain cells called neurons, and found miraculously that um, there's absolutely no evidence that the brain uh, evolved this way. Also, if you look at, I would say at this point, hundreds, if not thousands of research papers, you can find pretty good ev functional evidence as well that the brain doesn't work this way. And that there really, when you look at the brain, there is no, there is no system for instincts versus emotions versus rationality and 
so the they're you know even though this feels really true to us and it's been portrayed you know by freud as you know the ego and the id and the superego and you know um you can see um, remnants of it in system one versus system two um, which is another metaphor that sometimes people use that really even though it feels this way to us and it has very very old roots that this is not how the brain evolved and it's really not how the brain works at all and you know even when if you look at uh, the way that we attribute responsibility for crime it's like did the emotions get the better of you <laughs> or were you able to you know kick in your rational brain and and make decisions without the kind of hot-headed nature of of what might have happened in a crime of passion exactly and in fact i have a whole chapter about this devoted uh, devoted to this topic in my earlier book how emotions are made the secret life of the brain there's a a chapter where um you know, we we go over several different myths about emotion and the brain um, and how they play out in the courtroom, unfortunately. And I think this is such a interesting time to be talking about, you know, the way that you're you're sort of very you're much more accurate and, nu- and nuanced, but clear description of how the brain actually actually works when we have a country that's very divided and very divided across how we think about uh, the quote unquote other side in terms of what guides their decision making, whether it's rational or emotional. Um, but before we get there, I also now want us to talk a little bit about, OK, so that's the one one big misconception is that that we had these three or we have these three parts of our brain that are competing, you know, or for resources or whatever, and that they evolved one on top of each other. I actually use the analogy of an ice cream cone where the brain yeah, yeah. a cone and then you, you know nice. add a scoop and another scoop, right? And that like, you know, this idea that we our our emotional system we share with other animals that have a limbic system and it's like that's going back down the evolutionary tree which uh as opposed to like our emotional system has been evolving in tandem with the rest of our brain and is just as quote-unquote evolved as say our neocortex yeah so i guess the first thing i would say is that we don't really have a limbic system per se in the brain i mean in any brain as far as i can tell so this is a point and this is not a point that's original to me. Really, the idea of a limbic system, the roots of that go actually all the way back to Paul Broca in the 1900s. But I think Paul McLean in, in the mid 20th century, like 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, really solidified this idea of a limbic system. And even at that time, there were criticisms of the idea because there are many ways to define what limbic tissue looks like. So not to get too te- technical, uh, you know, with people, but um, one way to think about limbic tissue is that it, this is the, these are the neurons that control your autonomic nervous system, you know, so your, your cardiovascular system, your, your respiratory system, so your lungs, your heart, your gut, your liver, your, um, your pancreas, and so on. These are the, um, these limbic regions, so to speak, are the regions that control your immune system, your endocrine system. So they're really controlling the systems of your body. And they are distributed in not in a single system, but they are part of right now, sometimes scientists talk, they take the brain and they divide it up into little subsystems. And, you know, you can look at these limbic regions um, and they belong, they're scattered across two or three different subsystems of the brain. So there really, there really is no sort of single limbic system in the brain. 
But I think your point is extremely important, the, the point that you were making, that the changes in this circuitry or, or this circuitry hasn't remained static, that as brains evolve, this circuitry evolves along with it. And that's very, very true. And in fact, if you, can, if you look at um, where um, the evolutionary changes have been in, um, let's say, comparing um, a, a macaque brain to um, a human brain or a chimpanzee brain to a human brain, of course, you know, chimpanzees and macaques are modern animals as are humans. But when we want to look for evolutionary changes, we sometimes will compare the brains of um, existing animals on the assumption that whatever tissue they, sh they have in common that shares the same genetic pattern, that must have come from a common ancestor. And it turns out that um, there have been changes in the um, system the, or the circuitry in the brain that controls the body, which you know, people um, refer to as limbic circuitry, not to be confused with a limbic system, because it's not really a single system. It, like I said, it's, it's distributed. Um, the, the tissue is distributed across multiple subsystems of the brain. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, because we so often use metaphors to describe the brain, since it's a, a complex system and it's easier if we can, you know, th think of a, a way of describing it with a system that we do understand a little bit better. So um, you talk about some of the metaphors that, uh, you know, that that people use. And then you talk about the networked brain as actually not being a metaphor, but being a reality of, of how the brain actually is. So can can you describe what you mean by, you know, the brain as a net series of networks or a network? Yeah. So, um, you know, the one way to think about your brain. So if you if you were to just um, look at your brain, look at a brain with the naked eye, with your naked eye, just look at a brain. It looks like a single structure. You know, it's about more or less in a human, about three pounds. It looks like kind of like, uh, well, not if you touch it, but I mean, if you just look at it, it looks kind of like, you know, blobby, kind of jello-like. It actually feels a little bit, not exactly jiggly when you touch it, but, you know, it's not like super solid. It's kind of squishy. So it looks, you know, it looks like a single structure. But actually, what we know now is when you look, uh, peer deep into the brain with, with special tools, we can see that actually... The brain is made up of, you know, give or take 128 billion neurons. That's billion with a B. So individual cells. And then there's, there are other cells too called glial cells, which support, they, they do a number of things. Actually, I don't, scientists are, are now learning that glial cells can do some very remarkable things. Um, but originally they were thought to be just helper cells for the neurons and that these neurons are networked together. They're not, we, we sometimes talk about, you know, neurons being wired together, but they're not literally soldered together. Really, the neurons are, are existing in a, a matrix of chemicals. And these chemicals really are what allow neurons to pass information back and forth to each other. So um, when a neuron fires, meaning um, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how much detail I should go into or how much listeners actually know about the structure and shape of neurons. But basically, you can think of a neuron as when it gets, when it's carrying information, it sends an elect, it carries an electrical signal down to its roots. 
and then it ejects out some chemicals and then the next neuron picks up those chemicals and then it fires and sends an electrical signal down to its roots and, and so on and so forth. And this electrical and, and chemical storm is what knits together this um, 128 billion cells into a single functioning structure. And this structure can take on trillions of different patterns of activity depending on, on, on how the chemicals um, are distributed and, and what their concentrations are. So the chemicals kind of make it harder or easier for neurons to pass information back and forth to each other. And so what this means is that scientists talk about this as a complex network because it's a network in the sense that there are lots of little parts that are talking to each other. And it's complex, not just because it, it's like really complicated, which it is, but it's also complex in the sense that it's producing actions and perceptions that are more than the sum of its parts. Meaning when these 128 billion neurons are working together, they are producing outcomes or outputs that are different from what any single neuron can produce on its own. And the other remarkable thing is that the neurons themselves aren't tied to one specific job. Like we used to think that, you know, that, yeah, and, and <laughs> one of your great analogies is the, the pocket knife uh, version of the brain where there are these different regions and they serve different functions. And you can, you know, if you damage a region, then you lose that function. And, you know, that was how neuroscientists really thought about the brain uh, you know, for, for many decades, um, you know, if not all the way back to phrenology, um, we didn't even know sort of more about the neuroanatomy of the brain. And yet this networked side of it too. Also, I think, you know, it's important for people to understand that it's not a static network. It's in fact, you know, the, the, as you talk about in, in your chapter on baby brains, that they're adapting to their niche, yeah. So, I mean, even before we get to, to baby brains, even in, in our brains right now, so you and I are talking and if somebody was to take, you know, one or both of us, you know, if they stuck our heads in a brain scanner, you could see some evidence with a lot of processing of, of the data. You could see some evidence that, you know, my brain is um, taking on a pattern and your brain is taking on a pattern and these patterns are shifting as we're talking to each other and, and and anticipating uh, what each other's saying and, and, and comprehending the words that each other's saying, right? So what's really interesting about this is that the, even though um, you know, your brain will hold a pattern for a moment until it shifts to another pattern, when it's holding a pattern, that is the, the pattern of um, electrical chemical activity, the neurons themselves are shifting around, even though the pattern looks stable for a moment. So you know, your neurons basically kind of work like, a. I mean, the analogy, you know, you could use is sort of like a baseball team in a sense where neurons are switching out for each other all the time. The, the pattern is stable for a moment, but the neurons actually are, um, are switching out. Um, and so the pattern main, you know, is actually, if you look at a smaller temporal scale, the pattern is being maintained by different teams of neurons, essentially. Um, and this is called, the technical term for this is called network homeostasis. But it's, it's extremely cool because what it means is that you and I and every other brain on this planet have multiple 
assemblies of neurons, multiple teams essentially of neurons that can perform the same function. And that has this really funky name, unfortunately, called degeneracy, um, which is a really, it's a really terrible name. name. Yeah. Yeah. But what it means is that your brain and my brain and other brains on this planet are robust because more than one set of neurons can perform the same function. So it's, the brain is really cool because first of all, we have degeneracy, more than one group of neurons can perform the same function, but also a single neuron can have many functions. I mean, it doesn't have an infinite number of functions, but it has more than one, meaning, you know, it can play a part, one rule in, in one particular pattern, and it can play a different role in a, in a different pattern when it comes to when, where the roles are, you know, described in psychological terms. So you don't have one set of neurons dedicated to seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or thinking or feeling or, or anything like that. Even though neuroscientists sometimes will, you know, we sometimes will talk about visual neurons or neurons in visual cortex, meaning these are the neurons that receive sense data from the retina, you know, uh, well, eventually. Um, that goes through other parts, but, you know, eventually goes to um, these, these neurons in the cerebral cortex, which we call visual neurons in visual cortex. But visual neurons in visual cortex also carry information about hearing and about touch and about movement. And so technically, they're not really visual neurons, although scientists sort of refer to them that way as a shorthand. And people used to think, and many people, you know, still think, I, I think this is a fair statement that many neuroscientists still think that um, different groups of neurons have dedicated functions, kind of like puzzle pieces or Lego blocks, when in fact, I think at this point, there's enough evidence to suggest that that's actually not the way that the brain um, works. And there's a really nice book by the philosopher um, Mike Anderson called Beyond Phrenology, uh, where he goes over some of the most miraculous examples of multiple uses that a single neuron can be put to. And, you know, we can, we can get to talking about the infant brain, but I just sort of wanted to make the point that even in an adult brain, there's tremendous dynamic shifting around. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I wanted to lay the stage for a conversation about free will. And 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 because I found actually your description, you know, so so interesting because you don't just go out and say, look, we can override our emotional brain by thinking deeply and hard about it, which which is what a lot of actually social neuroscientists say. They say, yeah, we have implicit biases. We have, you know, uh, implicit emotional feelings that that we can curtail and not act upon by just, you know, using our prefrontal cortex. <laughs> um, and so I, so I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of and I, and I think to get there, we probably need to talk about the very beginning of the book, almost the half lesson, um, which is that the brain is not about, well, why don't you tell us about, about the whole, you know, reason that we have a brain? Yeah, so your brain, I mean, it seems obvious and kind of commonsensical, right, that the thing that, that humans, or at least Western humans, like, like us, and the people probably, most of the people listening to your podcast, um, are the most miraculous thing we can do is think and reason. And so to us, you know, that seems like must be the driving um, force behind evolution, right? That we evolved brains ultimately um, so um, that we can think. But it turns out that that's actually not the brain's most important job. Um, The brain's most important job is not thinking. It's not rationality. It's not feeling, it's not emotion, it's not seeing or hearing or tasting. Your brain's most important job is regulating the systems of your body. You know, we can't, scientists don't know for sure why brains evolved, and there could be more than one reason, but an educated guess would say that the brain's most important job, that is, it certainly evolved at least for this reason, is... um, to regulate your body, the systems of your body, to keep you alive and well, so that you can perform nature's most important task for you, which is to pass your genes on to the next generation, and then have that generation survive to um, produce offspring. And what you see and what you feel and what you hear and what you think is in the service of that um, bodily regulation. Now, that's not how we experience ourselves in the world. But under the hood, that does seem to be what is happening. And the interesting thing is, well, there are many interesting things about this, but one really interesting thing is that the way that your brain, the way that all brains appear to perform this function is predictively. So to us, it feels like that our brains are off I mean, right now, you know, for the last couple of months, it's or maybe even years, it seemed it's felt like many politicians' brains are off. But it feels like you know our brains are off, and then something in the world triggers the neurons to fire. So we see something, or hear something, or smell something, and then we react like a reflex, um, and we can um, overcome that reflex by sheer force of will. Um, so if we have an implicit bias. Uh, let's say, for whatever reason, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give an um, a trivial example. 
but you know, well, actually I was, I was going to make a joke actually about um, chocolate and like why anybody would eat milk chocolate. I don't know. I have an implicit, I have a very explicit bias, I guess, against milk chocolate, but I can make it, make it more, you know, more serious because it is more serious that, um, you know, the, the argument goes that somebody from one group encounters somebody from another group, feels threatened, and then reacts with um, an action that might actually disadvantage or harm their the outgroup member. And that in order to prevent this from happening, you have, by sheer force of will, you have to stop yourself from acting and change your action kind of midway through the process. And that's not really how brains work. It's not how brains are physically structured. There's a tremendous amount of evidence, um, both from anatomy across species and from signal processing across species and from um, metabolic functioning. And I mean, just, you know, pick a domain that studies the brain and you will see evidence that brains don't work this way. In fact, what's happening is something much more interesting and slightly unbelievable, which goes something like this. Your brain is stuck in a dark, silent box called your skull. It's receiving sense data from the world. It's receiving light and, and changes in light be, that are, you know, becomes vision and changes in air pressure that will become sound and, and so on. And it's receiving the outcomes of something that's happening in the world. Like you hear a bang. But what is this bang? Is this bang somebody slamming a door or dropping something heavy? Or is this bang one car hitting another car parked outside your house? Or is this bang a gunshot? Your brain doesn't really know. It has to guess. Similarly, your brain is receiving sense data from your body all the time. You feel a tug in your chest. Are you having trouble breathing? Are you anxious? Do you have gas? Is this the beginnings of a heart attack? Your brain doesn't know. It has to guess. And every source of sense data is like this. Your brain receives kind of incomplete, noisy data, and it has to guess at the meaning. Now, scientists and philosophers call this an inverse inference problem. Uh, you, you, know, you, you know the effects, but you don't know the cause. So what does the brain do? Well, it uses its past experience. So from the time that you are an infant onward, your brain has been collecting past experiences and can re-implement those experiences. And we have a fancy name for that. Actually, we have many fancy names for that in science because that's how you know something is important in science. A bunch of people discover it independently and call it by different names. That It's called memory. Not the conscious feeling of memory, but your brain basically works on the basis of memory. It figuratively speaking asks itself, what is similar to these sense data in my past? Like the last time that I was, you know, faced with this particular pattern of sight, sound, smells, and um, stuff going on inside my body, what did I do next? What did I see next? What did I, you know, what caused these things? And your brain basically makes a guess. And so it's using your past experience. And so the interesting thing is that it's doing this predictively. It's guessing it's basically saying, if we hold time constant right now, your brain is representing something about the world and something about the state of your own body. And it's making a guess based on the last time that you were in this state. It's associating and guessing at the pattern that will happen next. 
And it's, so it's, it's basically preparing you to act. It's preparing your body to do something. And it's preparing you to see something, to hear something, to smell something, to feel something. And sense data come in from the world and from your body to your brain and either confirm that prediction or change it. Now, if I ask you, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. So if I ask you to keep your eyes open, looking at, at something, say, you know, your computer screen or your phone screen, keep your eyes open and um, imagine in your mind's eye an apple. What, what do you see? Tell me what you see. Uh, I see a, a green apple <laughs> with like a little stem sticking out and some, you know, it's shiny. Okay. And if I ask you to grab the apple, imagine grabbing the apple in your hand and pulling it to your mouth and imagine taking a bite out of the apple. Can you hear the crunch of the apple? Mm-hmm. And I can, I can feel the, the crisp taste and the, you know, the, the little, you know, the, yeah, the juiciness of it. And I can feel it in my hand and yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So your brain just did this incredibly like fantastic thing, which is changed the firing of its own neurons in the absence of sense data. So it's preparing you to see an apple. It's preparing you to taste an apple. It's preparing you to hold an apple. It's preparing you to chew. It's your brain is actually, when we say that your brain is predicting, this is what we mean. We mean that your brain is changing the firing of its own neurons, preparing you to do something and to see something and to hear something and to taste something and so on. And so if I actually pulled out an apple and the apple was red, let's say, well, actually, let's start with green. So let's say I pull out a Granny Smith apple and I show you this apple and the apple's green. The sense data confirms the prediction. And so you bite into the apple and chew it. So the sense data, their main use is to confirm and release the motor response and the response going on inside your body, which we call visceromotor. But for the moment, I'm just going to treat them all. I'm just going to call it all motor for, for the sake of simplicity. And you, so your brain is basically preparing your movements and it's preparing your experience before the sense data actually arrive. And the sense data are there just to confirm it. And then well, that's what we would call automatic processing. But let's say I pull out a red Macintosh apple. Now your brain has a choice. It can take in the sense data that it didn't predict. You know, so that might be the, um, the red color and maybe a different texture and so on. Uh, and maybe um, change your behavior. Like maybe you don't like Macintosh apples. Maybe you really like uh, Granny Smith apples. So it's a Macintosh apple. And so your predictions change and you put the apple down. That's controlled processing. Alternatively, it's possible that your brain just doesn't really deem this to be very important. And so it takes a bite of the apple and you continue to see it as a green apple until someone points out that it's actually red. That can also happen where you missee something or mishear something or mis misperceive something in line with your own predictions, which scientists also call an internal model. So these predictions are kind of running all the time. They're modeling what the brain expects to happen in the world and in the body. So the interesting thing here is that your actions and your perceptions of the world, your experience of the world is being automatically prepared by your past experience. And in order for you to really change that 
trajectory of that pattern, which will produce your actions and your experience, something else has to happen. And we usually call that controlled processing. So the important point here is that, like, where did these predictions come from in the first place? Well, they came from your past experience. And so it's very, you can't go back into your past and change it. I mean, you can try, you can go to therapy or what have you, but you know, you can try, but it's not really that, that easy to do. You can also try to pull up a different past experience and you can actively try to remember or try to change the predictions that your brain is making. We call that sometimes reappraisal or we call it um, reframing or, you know, but basically you're trying to conjure up another set of past experiences to guide your behavior in a different direction. And that's usually what, what scientists mean when they talk about controlled processing. But the thing is that that's a really hard thing to do. And it's um, time consuming and sometimes doesn't work very well. So another way to have more control of your behavior is to seed your brain to predict differently in the future. And there are things that you can do you can invest effort now to create and cultivate, kind of curate new experiences for yourself that will allow your brain to very fluidly and automatically predict differently in the future. So you can, the way to think about it is you can't go back into your past and change your, your past, but your experience right now is kind of like continually cultivating your past. So what you experience now will very soon become your past. So whatever you're doing now, whatever you're watching now, whatever you're thinking now, all of these things become fodder for your past. So you're continually cultivating your past. Um, and you can do that very actively in order to predict differently in the future and become somewhat of a different person in the future. And it's very possible to do this, uh, you know, for example, with implicit racism, implicit bias. So where do we get our ideas about people who are not like us from books, from newspapers, from the internet, from television, and sometimes from our own experience. And so if we really want to, if there's an, if there is somebody who's not a member of our own particular group, who we don't have very much experience with, or we really want to change the way that our brains automatically predict, we can expose ourselves, develop, cultivate, or curate experiences for ourselves that will automatically seed our brain to make different predictions in the future. And therefore, our actions and, and experiences will become fluidly different in the future. Yeah, I think this is so important for people to really understand deeply in a time where this racial injustice movement is gaining steam and a lot of people are talking about, you know, diversity training and issues and this idea that you can just override your past and, you know, be successful at it is just not based in the neuroscience no, it really isn't. What you have to do is swamp your brain with data. The, really, the way to do it is to, to swamp your brain with data, but also realize that when, um, you know, when your brain believes or is predicting that there's a serious threat, a serious harm to you or, you know, to your physical or your, um, you know, your physical well-being or even your emotional well-being, your brain sometimes doesn't check very well the the sense data it's just gonna go with its own internal model and so in moments of you know stress 
which just means your brain is metabolically preparing your body for a major, you know, major metabolic outlay, your your brain may not be very good at correcting itself if it predicts incorrectly. So we got to work on changing those predictions. <laughs> we do. And, you know, one thing I didn't go into really in the in the book in Seven and a Half Lessons, but I did kind of hint at it in an op-ed that I wrote for the New York Times a number of years ago about this, was that we have more personal responsibility for our behavior than we might like because we have predicting brains. Um, and we have some, we may not have, you know, a lot of control in every single moment in the present, but we do have control uh, to some extent over what, how our brains will be predicting in the future. But we also collectively have some responsibility because who decides what gets shown on television, like what a 10 o'clock drama looks like and who's the perpetrator in a cop drama and who's the, you know, who's the cop or who decides who the CEO is, you know, in a, a show about, you know, industry or, or lawyers or whatever, or who decides whether presidents are male or female in the, in a movie or, you know, who decides these things? I mean, who decides these things? We decide we, I mean, it's not just the people in Hollywood and whatever who are making movies or making television shows or, or um, it's, you know, we decide uh, with the, the money that we spend to pay to see this entertainment, which makes its way into our brains um, uh, to affect our predictions. And so the point, I think, is that everything that you think, everything that you see, everything that you do, you know, these are all things that are in service of your um, keeping your body budget, keeping your, your brain is you know, running this budget for your body. And it's trying to manage the systems of your body and it's creating thoughts and sights and so on feelings in the service of regulating your body. So you have some control over what you expose, what material you expose yourself to that makes its way into your brain and to make those future predictions, which guide your future actions. And I think we all have to realize this, that we are not just responsible for ourselves. We're also responsible for the world that we curate that wires, that keeps our brains wired in a particular way, and that wires the brains of the next generation. Yeah, I think that that's what I really want people to take away from this book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And while you're at it, you should go get um, How Emotions Are Made, too, is the sense that we might we might not have free will in the moment where, you know, our brain is already prepared action before we've consciously sensed the environment. But we have the ability to prepare for the next time we encounter that particular set of circumstances um, by exposing ourselves to the kinds of things that that we the way in which we want to shape our brain for its future. Exactly. Beautifully said. Well, I'm going to I'm going to stop talking then. <laughs> since, <laughs> since that's a great compliment from someone I respect very highly. Lisa Feldman Barrett, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And while you're at it, give us a review wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Ewald, and Charles Blyle. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.